0: This is Questions of Courage, a podcast from the Youth Section at the Goetheanum, hosted by Nathaniel Williams. Welcome to Questions of Courage. Today I'd like to tell a story of peace. It is a very influential and meaningful story as far as peace in North America and to some extent beyond is concerned, but it's not very well known, and it is uh, the story of the peacemaker, of the founder of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which was a confederacy and is a confederacy still, now of six nations and originally of five nations. I'm just going to tell uh, the outline of this story today. and. I understand that in the longhouse, it takes 55 hours to share it. And so, these are just some excerpts from the story, and I have provided also some references for those who want to learn more about it in the show notes. If you go back six or seven hundred years, eight hundred years in the area what is that's now called New York, it's said that at that time there was perpetual war between five nations, the Mohawk nation, the Oneida nation, the Cayuga, Onondaga, and Seneca. They lived in the area of the Finger Lakes and around. And there was perpetual war, perpetual battles, but not just in the way we think of it today, It's also said that it was a time of really great evil and that one of the ways that this showed up was through black magic, but also cannibalism. That when you met people that you didn't know, you couldn't be sure if they were looking at you as simply an enemy or as possible prey and food. And there was no end to the cycles of conflict that were taking place. At this time, uh, an individual was born who, eventually becomes known as the great peacemaker. Already as a young man, he's aware that he has a task to bring a great law of peace to this area of war and conflict. And he sets out as a young man to spread this great law and is speaking to anyone who will listen to him. But there's so much deep cynicism and there's so much also trauma related to the violence that not many people will listen to him. They have a hard time even making meaning out of the words that he uses. At one point in his journey, he comes to a house where a woman named Jigonsoze lives and she is a person who will care for and take care of warriors who are wounded no matter what nation they belong to, feed them, bandage them, and care for them. And the peacemaker proposes to her um, to join him in trying to bring an end to this perpetual violence. But she cannot really see how it's realistic from her experience. She says, it's easy to speak about peace, but it's hard to realize peace. How will you do this? But the words and the impression of the Peacemaker uh, work on her over time and eventually she has a change of heart and she becomes one of the first people to join the Peacemaker and the delegation of the Peacemaker, which eventually is such a a transformative group. And the Peacemaker calls her Jigonsuze of the new face. And already, in the relationship between the Peacemaker and Jigonse, Jigonse there's a meaningful uh, intuition of a kind of constitution and leadership where the, the chiefs and the leaders who are chosen are nominated by carers. And in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which was eventually to be set up, this was the circle of women who would choose men to be leaders of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, who had skin seven thumbs thick and therefore were not easily irritated, who had children and families and did not have predispositions towards violence and war. But at this point, when the peacemaker meets Chiganzoze and she joins his effort. There are many years and many journeys and conversations before this was to become a reality. Still, already a meaningful um, alliance has come about. They travel on, they travel between the different nations and the most powerful nations are the Seneca, and the Onondaga Nation. And as they go from nation to nation, preaching that there's a great law of peace, there's a way to bury all the hatchets, to bury all of the weapons, and for thinking to replace killing, and for all nations to sit under one roof, what will eventually become the longhouse. And yet, every time that they go to a nation and they speak with the chiefs, and they speak with the people, the main argument is that if they bury their hatchet, if someone buries their hatchet, it just means they're vulnerable. The only way that anyone will relinquish violence and also preparedness for violence is if everyone agrees to it, if everyone agrees to adopt a great law of peace. And this story uh, continues on and on. On this journey, at one point, the peacemaker passes along a road, which is known as the murderer's road. And he comes upon uh, a hut beside this road where a man lives, who comes out and kills people unsuspectingly as they walk by. And that's how he survives. That is his way of nourishing himself. The peacemaker climbs on top of his hut, of his house, and he looks down through the smoke hole. And right as he does this, the man is actually preparing a meal of someone that he's killed. And he's looking down into this great pot where he's preparing his meal. And as he looks down, he sees the reflection of the peacemaker's face in the pot. And there's something from this reflection which irradiates such a humanity and such a peace and such a dignity. And for a moment, this man thinks that it's his own face that is reflected in the water. And he is shaken by powers of conscience. He's shaken by the fact that he could murder people for food, that he could live as he's living. And he takes this moment of awakening and he takes a hold of this pot and he stumbles outside of his house and he empties it out and he's just sobbing and crying in utter misery and suffering and also with a huge burden from the powers of conscience that have been awoken in him. The peacemaker approaches him climbs down off the roof and comes to him. And here, the man tells his story. At one point, he was a great chief. He was the chief of the Mohawks, a great leader. And he was a proponent for peace and for an ending of violence. However, he went through an experience that was so painful. And he took on griefs and traumas that were so deep that he sank into a undescribable depression and eventually into the life that he was leading when the peacemaker found him. This happened through the murder of his family. He had seven daughters. He had hope. He had meaning in working for peace, and one of the great chiefs of the Onondaga Nation named Tadadaho attacked his village, killed his whole family, and killed all of his daughters. This man then dejected everything taken from him, fell into this depression, fell into this situation in which the Peacemaker has now found him. At this point, the Peacemaker begins a condolence ceremony and he cleanses and helps to purify all of this suffering and all of this weight that is Burdening and ultimately crushing this man. And he says, Tears blind your eyes. I wipe these away with the soft white fawn skin of compassion. I make it daylight for you and beautify the sky. Now you shall do your thinking in peace when your eyes rest on the sky. But he does not only offer a way for purification of the vision that is blurred by grief, that is blurred by tears. He goes on to say, your ears are obstructed, you cannot hear. I remove this obstruction with these words and a feather that you may have perfect hearing, that you may hear the calling birds the rushing of the water and the voices of others. And so also he offers an opportunity to purify all of the deafness that has come through suffering for this man. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, your throat is stopped up and you cannot talk. I give you water to drink, to wash away the grief, so that you can breathe and be enlivened by the Creator, and so that you can speak clearly. And here again, powers of purification, healing and ennoblement are indicated and offered for this man. A certain healing, a certain resurrection and purification takes place in the story here between these two individuals. And then the peacemaker once again, shares his vision and says, I bring the great law of peace, thinking should replace killing. All hatchets should be buried and all nations should sit under one roof. He then gives this man a name. This man becomes one of his closest allies in the effort for peace, bringing the great law of peace, and he's called Iowatha. It's important to point out that this is not the Hiawatha that the famous poem is about. The name was borrowed and applied to another story. This is Iowatha, he who combs, and eventually he will have the task to comb the snakes out of the great wizard's hair, Tadadaho, the wizard who murdered his family, and who also is the last to be open to adopting the great law of peace. At this point, they set out together, and this diplomatic team, this traveling diplomatic group for peace is growing. Jigunzeze, who the peacemaker refers to as the new face. Hiawatha, he who combs, have joined the peacemaker as well as others, and they continue to travel and to try to build up a movement for peace and a new constitution, a new confederacy of nations. And Hiawatha is a wonderful and powerful asset in this effort. Because he is the great orator. His words clarify thoughts, feelings, and intentions of his listeners. When he speaks, there's a power of peace. There's a power of wisdom that is immediately communicated to everyone who's present. This is something that was not given to the peacemaker in his efforts alone, but together they're able to make progress that they weren't able to before. And we have to imagine that this is not something that happens in one night, this is not something that happens in one year, but in many years this effort is ongoing. And eventually everyone is willing to adopt the great law of peace. The first nation that was willing were the Mohawk Nation. And for that reason, they're referred to as the founders of the Confederacy to this day. But in order for the great law of peace to be adopted, everyone had to agree. And the last holdouts were the Onondaga Nation, which were located right in the middle of the five nations, in the center of the territory, in the center of the conflict. And they were led They were influenced by a powerful, powerful individual named Tadadaho. Tadadaho had a crooked body. It's said that he had seven crooks in his back. He was a powerful magician, and his hair was full of snakes. When they came in a great delegation from all the nations to Tadadaho, on his island in the swamp of central, what today is central New York, they presented their willingness to bury the hatchet and invite him into the Confederacy. Not only that, but they indicated that if Tadadaho would lead the Onondagas to bury the hatchet and embrace the great law of peace, that he could be the tender of the central fire that we could, in some ways, compare to the most prominent position in the Confederacy. That he could, be in a way, be president, even though this is a very limited metaphor. But Tadadaho's answer was a sneer. It was cynicism, a laugh, and a scream. When will this ever, ever come to be? Absolute skeptical. Attitude, a cynical heart. This was a terrible obstacle because it was clear to everyone that if the Onondaga did not join the Great League, did not join the Confederacy, peace was really impossible. And on leaving, From one of these visits, Jigunzuse saw an eagle in the sky, and that eagle was also accompanied by a great song from the sky that she was able to hear, a peace hymn. She understood that this hymn had the power to bring about the final transformation that was necessary for the Confederacy to be founded. And she taught it to the delegation, and the delegation returned to Dadadaho, the chief of the Onondagas, singing this song. And as they approached his island in the swamp, they heard his laugh, they heard him screaming, when will this ever come about? But it became quieter, because he was also hearing something. He was hearing this hymn of peace. By the time they arrived, and approached him. His gestures and his manner was pacified. He was receptive, and when they proposed once again that he consider embracing the great law of peace and to be the tender of the central fire in the longhouse, he kneeled down in a gesture of affirmation. At this point, Hiawatha. Hiawatha is the man whose family was killed by this magician, by this chief, steps forward. And he combs the snakes out of the hair of this man. And the peacemaker steps forward and he straightens the seven crooks in his spine. This began the establishment of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Through wampum um, um, discussion and wampum, a set of agreements, which are referred to as timbers of the longhouse or beams of the longhouse, were, were made. And these agreements were understood as agreements of strength. One of the central lessons of the peacemaker involved taking an arrow and breaking it over his knee and saying, alone you are weak, together we are strong. And he would bind five arrows together and show how it was impossible for him to break it over his knee. And so this image arose of a strong, strong peace spirit and it was imagined as a great white pine tree, and it had four roots, and these roots went in the directions of north, south, east, and west, and they stretched all around the world, a great spirit of peace. On the peak of this white pine tree sat a bald eagle, and buried underneath it was a war hatchet or a Mohawk club, war club. So the Confederacy began, and I'm just gonna mention some remarkable facts about this Constitution and this Confederacy. It appears to be the first time in history that the phrase United Nations appears. Within the Constitution, The freedom of speech and the right for religious belief were protected. Citizenship was allocated to anyone who wanted to live in the area and to abide by the great law of peace. Nations, indeed, could join the Confederacy, which eventually happened with the Tuscarora Nation, which made the Five-Nation Confederacy into a Six-Nation Confederacy. Many Europeans, who arrived in this territory at the time of colonization. They became dual citizens, citizens of the Confederacy, one of the nations, and also retaining a citizenship in their European country. This was allowed as well. They had a kind of Balancing out or complementing of nationalism and language groups through the establishment of a clan system, the peacemaker made clans that existed in all five nations. So besides belonging to a nation, you also belong to a clan, and that clan had members in all of the other nations. And these clans were then cultivated in such a way that you would feel that another clan member was a part of your family. And traveling across the territory, you could always call on your clan for hospitality and anything that you needed as relatives. So trying to break down the national egotism, the clan system was initiated. There was also, for those of you who know something about Um, government, and constitutions in other areas, social constitutions, political constitutions. There was a kind of bicameral system that was set up, and there were long deliberation processes where chiefs from the different nations deliberated on actions of the Confederacy. As I mentioned before, these chiefs were nominated by a circle of women because of the intention for the type of person to be in leadership, to be one with skin seven thumbs thick, as I said, and to have a family, um, to have children, to have an orientation towards caring. This circle of women also had the power of impeachment. They could remove a chief who was not abiding by the great law of peace. Benjamin Franklin as a young man, before the establishment, the writing of the United States Constitution, served as a clerk or scribe at meetings between the English delegates and the Haudenosaunee. And he developed a deep interest in the Haudenosaunee and their constitution. And he began to advocate for learning from them And in some of his first suggestions for a confederacy of the colonies, one, for instance, known as the Albany Plan, he started to make direct parallel comparisons. This was a very conscious model for many people who were alive at the end of the 18th century for the dilemmas of creating what we consider one of the first modern states, the United States of America, and the Constitution that it rests on. And I'm not going to go into any details, more details about that. But in some of the show notes, you can look at some of the scholarship that uh, describes this relationship. Of course, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy um, does not only have a history of peace, and it's clear that there were um, battles and transgressions and disagreements between the nations throughout its history, but we can see very clearly a moment of social-political transformation from a kind of hellish and torturous situation that seemed to result in a perpetual downward spiral of violence, an unending cycle of bloodshed and deeper trauma finding a remarkable, a miraculous transformation resulting in the first democracy that we know of to be established on the North American continent and influencing one of the most impressive democracies of history also in the United States of America And we also see that the emphasis on peace, the emphasis on diplomacy, the emphasis on listening, on everyone having their say, on having leaders which are not primarily fighters, that there's a kind of gesture towards political social life which differs deeply from some of the traditions from Rome and from Greece, and that we refer almost entirely in our discussion about democracy, at least in the United States, to these European precedents, whereas there could be much to learn even today from a peaceful imagination of constitutional collaboration of constitutional cooperation and maybe even a recognition of a spirit of peace that is active and has been active for hundreds of years in the United States of America and its white roots reaching far beyond that could still help perhaps in very different ways today, as we see similar problems and challenges. This is Questions of Courage, which is a collaboration between the Goethe Annam Communications team, um, Goethe Annam TV, the weekly newsletter, and the youth section. And this effort at the Goethe Anum is not supported by tax money, it's not supported by any great endowment or um, uh, business income. It's really supported by thousands and thousands of people from around the world who want to support the mission and work of the Goethe Anum. And I'd like to invite you to consider making a contribution to the Youth Access and Project Fund, or the youth section. Um, You can see the production costs for this podcast are very low and um, any contribution you make you can be assured that it will mostly support youth work around questions of spirituality and the spirit that they're cultivated at the Gautanam. so thank you so much until next time